Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Hi, guys. Kinsey Schofield here, and welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast. I am going to be completely honest with you. I did an incredible interview with historian David Oldroyd Bolt um, prior to the Queen's death. I created an entirely new folder for him so I wouldn't lose the interview because as you can imagine all hell broke loose once the queen passed and I just wanted to make sure I didn't lose this interview because you know um the the tone changes um the the direction changes when something like that happens your focus entirely changes and we even kept saying to each other actually should we get back together and do a completely different podcast because we speak of the queen as if she's there obviously, because she was throughout the interview. I lost that interview because I, that was very organized of me to create an entire folder dedicated to him so I wouldn't lose the interview. It was very unlike me, so I lost that interview. I recently found it, and I wanted to share it with you because it's a great conversation. David is incredible. He's incredibly knowledgeable. He's smart. He's funny. And so I wanted to make sure you heard that conversation and I just wanted to give you this preview, just so you know, this this was recorded prior to the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, we really don't go into Harry and Meghan much. So if you're looking for some of that 80s, 90s royal history, which is my happens to be my favorite, I think you'll really like this conversation. And um, so grateful for his time, so grateful for his patience as it's taken me yeah, a year to get this up. And um, I'm actually going to be editing this while traveling. So hopefully I get this up to you sooner than later. And I really hope you enjoy my conversation with David. Let me know, tweet me, send me an email, Kenzie at todiefordaily.com. Let me know your thoughts. Thanks again so much for listening to the Today for Daily podcast. I'm so grateful for your friendship and I'll talk to you again soon. David Oldroyd Bolt, you are a historian you are a political is it just do you think you're a general commentator or do you consider yourself a political commentator um general commentator i suppose but um what i mostly talk about on gb news and on other channels uh is current affairs yeah. so it's it's the it's the public um the public interaction of the day which tends to be political uh, and i do mostly talk about british politics sometimes about world politics when it's um, a cultural matter or when it's something that has an historical context to it. But by and large, what I talk about is, is British politics. We had a great moment on Colin Brazier the other day where it was a mic drop, where Colin literally had to cut to commercial because they needed a second to take in what you said. You were talking about treason and yeah. you brought up the fact, and I think everybody had forgotten about this, um, that James Hewitt could have very well been considered treasonous for his affair with Princess Diana. Um, and Colin Brazier didn't even know what to do. He was like, I need a second to process this. <laughs> well, this is true, yes, because, and it's still the case under the Treason Act, if you are having an affair with the wife of the heir to the throne, which Prince Charles is, was in the 1980s when Diana, Princess of Wales, and James Hewitt were having that affair, you are committing treason. Um, and, so, I mean, the, the like, I think someone did actually try to bring a prosecution, a private prosecution against Major Hewitt. But because it was um, after the fact and three years had elapsed 
between the end of the affair uh, and more than three years had elapsed between the end of the affair and the man trying to prosecute him, it wasn't valid. Um, if he'd done it within three years after, and I think their affair ended, was it in 1981, 1986? Can't remember. Uh, but if it had occurred within three years of the end of that affair, he could have been prosecuted for treason. And in fact, I don't see how he would have avoided uh, being convicted of it because wow. the affair was widely known. Wow. Can I ask you, have you had any royal run-ins? Of what sort? <laughs> <laughs> have you had an affair with a, royal, a, a member of the royal family? Um, I'm, no. glad, I'm, I'm glad to say both as a, a loyal subject of Her Majesty uh, and as uh, someone who doesn't want to go to prison that I've not had an affair with <laughs> the wife of the heir to the uh, throne, uh, nor with the consort. No, so uh, we're clear on that front. Oh, good, good. Um, have you, I, I just mean, have you seen them at events? Have you ever? Yes, you know, yes. Oh, wow. Um, I've, I have, um, because I have a connection with uh, a particular club in London, the Polish Hearth Club, Ognisko, which is a very fine restaurant, which everybody in London should visit at number 55 Exhibition Road, SW7. <laughs> Um, because I'm lucky enough to go there, the Duke of Kent, the current Duke of Kent, is the president of that club, as his father had been before him. This was a club formed during the Second World War for the Poles in exile. Uh, and the then Duke of Kent, um, who was killed in an air crash in 1942, was the first president. The current Duke of Kent took that over, um, I think, when he was still a very young man and remains uh, the president. And so he goes to concerts there. Uh, and there was a lovely birthday party for him. Uh, earlier this year, which was uh, thrown by members of the club. And so one sees Duke of Kent there and his sister, Princess Alexandra, the honor Honourable uh, uh, Princess Alexandra, uh, goes there, goes there uh, uh, and many other members of the Kent side of the family. In fact, Prince and Princess Michael of Kent were also there. Oh. Honourable Lady Ogilvy, there we go. Sorry, I was being slow. Princess Alexandra, the Honourable Lady Ogilvy, um, sister of Duke of Kent. So, yeah, one season there. And, of course, you know, various... Uh, events uh windsor horse show one used to see her majesty and the duke of edinburgh um so you know, it, if you if you're in the right places at the right time it's not terribly difficult to catch a glance uh, of one of the members of the royal family well i guess i'm gonna have to hang out with you the next time i come over there come to london and let's meet someone <laughs> i know right uh so specifically i wanted to delve into um Diana and Charles's relationship at the beginning, yeah. it felt like the Queen's father had the privilege of marrying for love, although that was a completely different scenario. They didn't know he was going to be the king, so he probably yeah. had a little bit more freedom. The Queen seemed to marry Prince Philip for love. She was, you know, devastatingly smitten with him. Mm -hmm. But it, it does seem like it stops at Prince Charles. Some would argue that Charles and Diana were an arranged marriage. What are your thoughts on that? Why did he, why did he marry somebody that he would tell you he wasn't in love with? Well, let's begin by thinking about the marriage of the Queen's parents. Uh, he was Duke of York. Uh, the story is that, in fact, she, uh, she Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, was more interested in uh, the Prince of Wales, later Edward VIII. Uh, but he wasn't terribly interested in her. Uh, the Duke of York, uh, Albert, known as George, when he became King George VI, asked three times before he was accepted by later Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Um, and finally, she said, yes, they were married in 1953. And then, of course, had uh, the current Queen in 1926 and uh, the Princess Margaret in 1930. Um, 
it was yes i mean i suppose it was a love match um because as you say it was not expected that duke of york would become king uh, though there had been a move away a very definite move by king george v and queen mary that their children would not marry european royalty as previous generations had done uh, that they would be allowed to marry commoners mm. by which mean anyone of non-royal blood uh, so of course king george v married princess may of tech though she was in fact born and brought up in britain she was technically a, a german uh, serene highness she wasn't a royal highness um and then you you when you have the queen and the duke of edinburgh uh who as you say she was smitten with him from the age of 14 um it is a love match but don't forget that the duke of edinburgh was if we're t going to talk about things in purely terms of blood and and descent more royal than the queen uh being descended from two royal households uh and both his parents being fully royal so there was, although he was a commoner by the time they married, uh, because his father had been uh, dispossessed as king of Greece, he was still royal. And there was a lot of, I, I don't know how best to put this, there was a lot of uncertainty about uh, Philip, Prince Philip uh, from the older, crustier, you might say more reactionary uh, courtiers, people like Tommy Lassels, yeah. for instance, um, because they thought he was a troublemaker, they thought he was a radical they thought that his family was not quite respectable. I mean, don't forget that uh, was it three of Prince Philip's sisters had married Germans and had therefore Nazi connections. Mm -hmm. uh, though, of course, he himself, there was never a, a shadow of uh, any doubt of his loyalty to this country. So th though it was a love match, there were still great questions to be asked. But again, it was, it was difficult because... I think that though it was known by this point that that Queen would become Queen, um, you know, she was a far there was no there's no chance of her parents having any male children by that point who would supplant her in the succession. Um, I don't think it was a, a, arranged nearly to the degree that the marriage of Charles and and, uh, and Lady Diana Spencer was arranged. It's said by their grandmothers who were who were friends. The Queen was friends with Rain Countess Spencer. Um, and um, I think you have to, I think you have to take that strongly into account. There was also the great fixation of the time that the Prince of Wales should only be allowed to marry a woman who was a virgin. Oh wow! I, um, I always try to forget about that one. <laughs> yes, well, it was you know don't forget that you know forty years ago. Yeah, there was still so it's practically half a century. Yeah, times change, manners and mores change. But the court moves much more slowly than the rest of society. Yeah. Always has done. It's the very nature of a court. Uh, unless you have someone, as you had Prince Philip doing in the first two decades of the Queen's reign, pushing modernization, then these things always you know, just lag slightly behind the rest of society. So though it was not perhaps by 1980, 81, a preoccupation for most men getting married, they should marry a woman who was untouched by other human hands. It very much was for the royals. I don't think necessarily for the Prince of Wales himself. Of course, we will never ask him and we'll never find out. But one would think that it was not terribly high up his list. But for those arranging the marriages, for those looking for the succession, it was important because there needed to be no skeletons in the closet. Right. Yeah, I um, I don't know how much you care about this, but I have been obsessed with Elvis over the last few weeks after seeing the movie. And he was obsessed with being with virgins, too. And I, it must have just been... The times it must you know it just must have been a different t time of um 
time in the world, and I cannot relate. And then her uncle commented on it. Her uncle talked to the media about it and yeah. said that, it, oh, my goodness, how frightening. I would be so mad if I had a family member talk to anybody about something so sacred. Well, it is one of the very, 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 very few points of sympathy I have for the Duchess of Sussex in that she had a quite different family who would talk about her when uh, she was marrying Prince Harry. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, you, you had to expect at the time that there was going to be a focus on this. Yeah. Um, because we were talking about the man who's going to be king and therefore whose children would in turn be sovereign. And I think it was felt, I think that a lot of people still would say this, even if they don't articulate the feeling, uh, they feel it anyway. Uh, they, there's an idea that the woman who is going to be the mother of the future monarch ought not to have a past. Interesting. Now, I don't think that this was explicit when Prince William married Catherine Middleton, but I think there was still a fairly strong idea that even if she had had boyfriends, and, and you know, it would be, it would have been patently absurd to expect that in the 21st century that would not be the case. There was still the idea that she ought not to have, you know, s strings of ex-lovers who could come out of the woodwork when eventually she becomes queen. And I think that was very much in the mind of those arranging the, the marriage of the Prince of Wales and Lady Diana Spencer, that there shouldn't be people who could cause embarrassment to the institution of the monarchy once they became king and queen. Absolutely. Um, do you think that that divorce was one of the, the hardest hits that the royal family had taken since the abdication? I mean, could that divorce have, if it were handled incorrectly, could the divorce have brought down the monarchy? I think it was a big hit for the monarchy. I'm not sure it was of the level of existential severity of the abdication. Um, I think had it been handled badly, then it would have embarrassed the monarchy. But the Queen did a very good job, uh, as she tends to do, uh, of standing above it. Uh, and, don't, and don't forget that it was uh, Her Majesty who instructed uh, Prince of Wales and, uh, and Princess of Wales to separate. Uh, and then finally said, you know, you, you have to do this properly. Um, mishandling it would have been difficult to do because it was also uh, tied up by lawyers. You, you know, you had um, Fiona Shackleton acting for the Prince of Wales, um, who's a highly experienced, and now, well, she's now Baroness Shackleton of Belgravia, highly experienced lawyer. It was, un it was very unlikely that it was going to be mishandled. I suppose there could have been the potential for scandal and embarrassment had uh, the Princess of Wales decided to spill the beans at the time, but she didn't. And I think it would have been unlikely that she would have done because she, her financial settlement would have been greatly affected. Yeah. Um, and whatever else she was, um, the late Princess of Wales, when it came to things like that, thinking, of course, of her children was not stupid. Absolutely. Um, do you think if Diana... Do you think she could have continued to be HRH, Diana, Princess of Wales, and just stayed married but separated? Had she could have just accepted Camilla as the mistress? Um, it feels like Diana pushed back so much. And there were women in the past that just tolerated the husband having an affair yeah. um, so that they could keep their lifestyle. But it felt like Diana demanded more. She wanted to be loved. I don't think that she was constitutionally capable of it. Mm. As, as you say, she wanted so much to be loved and adored, to be paid attention to. And I think we can say with the with distance of a quarter of a century, she was a highly neurotic, 
mentally unstable woman. And there was no possibility, therefore, that she could do what so many other royal wives and, and consorts and aristocratic women had done before, which was to turn the blind eye to the affairs that her husband was going to have. Um, you know, don't don't forget that Edward VII, when he died, had both his wife, Queen Alexandra, and his mistress, Mrs. Keppel, a grandmother of um, Parker Bowles, by his yeah. bedside. Yeah. Um, you know, they, and they became friendly. Uh, th this was a fairly accepted part of that sort of social milieu, that sort of class, that sort of atmosphere. Um, but I just don't think that, that Diana Spencer was in her bones capable of this sort of relationship. Uh, and I think the fact that she was incapable of it, sh and I think this was pretty obvious, really, from the beginning. Um, and it, w it was one of those sort of big alarms that should have gone off in the minds of courtiers, in the minds of those setting up the marriage, that this woman was not capable of that sort of life. And the fact that the Prince of Wales uh, was probably, you know, we, we, we think that his affair had ended with Camilla Shan, Camilla Parker Bowles by this time, um, although, of course, it later resumed. Um, I think it should have been obvious that this was never going to work, that this was a different sort of woman from the sort of strong, stable, steady, home counties, aristocratic background sort of woman, like, for instance, Camilla Parker Bowles. Um, I, you know, the very, the very nature of Diana, the, what made her attractive to people, part of her charm was that vulnerability, um, the, the idea that she was a little fragile and not sort of made of wrought iron like so many other royal consuls and wives had been. And so the idea that she could have sat back and watched her husband going around having affairs left, right and centre without it causing her great distress and therefore without her acting in an equal or opposite way I think it was for the birds. Okay, I interrupted you while you were taking a sip of water. So take a sip of water while I look at my notes. Thank you. Um, uh, I want to make sure. Uh, do I still have time with you? I know I promised you to. You've got as minutes. long as you want. Oh, thank Absolutely you so as long much. as you want. I'm so grateful. I remember putting down these questions and writing down these questions thinking, I hope these are enough questions for the podcast. And now you're so good at this. I'm so sorry for keeping you, but I love uh, what you're saying. That we, you've got as long as you want, really. I appreciate it. Um, well, you actually addressed this earlier a little bit. Uh, Charles was great uh, at hiding his relationship with Camilla because he was friends with her husband. He would go to weekends with Camilla and her husband. No one, you know, no one really was caught off guard by seeing Charles with Camilla because her husband was usually around. Um, so I don't really think normal people suspected anything was going on. Were no, and I, and I, oh, I think it's important to note, if I'm sorry to interject, I think no. it's important to note that once Camilla married uh, Andrew Parker Bowles, she did her best and she told the Prince of Wales she was going to be a good wife. Mm -hmm. It was only when Andrew Parker Bowles himself started to have affairs that I think Camilla started to drift. Um, and don't forget the fact is that Camilla uh, and no, uh, Andrew Parker Bowles remain very good friends, as, mm -hmm. and he remains a very good friend of the Prince of Wales. He's intimately connected with the royal family through his military connections and through his social connections. So these things just weren't allowed really to derail the show. Yeah, um, interesting. It's just not what's done among people of that sort, and particularly at that sort of level. Um, but we come back to the, you know, the point here that. It, Diana was a different kettle of fish. She was built differently. Uh, she had a different... She had what you might call different mental furniture. Okay. 
<laughs> That's interesting. Um, and I mean, perhaps if at the very, very beginning of their relationship of their marriage, Prince of Wales had been totally honest and said, you know, I love you and I want to have a marriage with you. Um, but I will do as every other man in my family has done for the past thousand years and have a mistress at some point, if I feel like it, and you've just got to live with it. Perhaps if there had been that level of honesty at the beginning, it might have turned out differently. But I don't think that they ever had that kind of intimacy or trust in each other. Yeah, I don't I, think I, that they ever had that bond of, uh, that, that would allow for that sort of relationship. I did hear that he says that to her in a huge fight when, you know, when it, it's been years on in. Yeah. And he does finally say, look, I'm just doing what the people, the men before me did. And at that point, it's like, she's heartbroken. There's no justification. Um, but did, were Diana's, you know, affairs, were they more dangerous? Were they less discreet? Yes. Frankly, yes. Um, they were certainly less discreet because she wanted to get attention and she wanted to get a reaction both from her husband, the Prince of Wales, and from the royal court, and probably from the Queen herself. Um, and they were more dangerous because, frankly, this is still in some ways an old-fashioned world. And it's, I think, if not accepted, it's more tolerated that uh, a man in a position of power of that sort, certainly in the 1980s, would have affairs and it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect him fundamentally. I think the idea that a woman could then have had an affair and be treated in the same way, as though it didn't affect her fundamentally, would was just impossible. Um, and so her her affairs had a sort of existential threat to the nature of monarchy. It never could because it was always accepted. Mm. Um, I I was wondering too, just looking at the way that the Andrew Morton book came about. Some of the decisions Diana made, they were based on counsel with astrologers are just quirky characters. Did she have the right people advising her or did she have, did she, I don't know. I, it just feels like she didn't understand what was at stake when she would make, I mean, I think she, later on in her life, she seemed very aware of consequences, but earlier in some of her decisions, I didn't really think she thought about that. Well, let's not forget that she was very young Yes. Very inexperienced and not terribly clever. Um, and this combination is an unfortunate one for someone who is thrust into the public eye, constantly in the gaze of the media, constantly under scrutiny. Uh, every gesture, every syllable, examined, re-examined, stripped apart for meaning. Um, I think you're right that she was ill-advised. That is not, however, to... Um, Let's be careful about this. It's not to say that she didn't have some good advice, because she certainly did from those within the court. There were many people around, professional courtiers, and of course members of the family, not least the Duke of Edinburgh, who tried and tried and tried to give Diana Princess of Wales good advice. But she didn't listen to them, because what she was being told was not what she wanted to hear. And I think this is very much within the psyche of an emotionally unstable, damaged, upset woman, or person, frankly, is that you tend to seek out the solace of those who will tell you what you want to hear. Uh, and yes, you're right, there were some charlatans, the astrologers and the other sorts of people. And there were charlatans within her own household as well, people like Paul Burrell. Um, I think the basic point is that it's very difficult in situations like that, if, you know, in a sort of normal life, uh, during a difficult marriage and a separation, not to be ill-advised, when you are under the glare of the world's media, mm. I should think it's next to impossible not to fall prey to bad advice. 
as the Prince of Wales did, of course. You know, the whole the whole sorry mess is a classic example of two people being driven apart in part by people trying to keep them together. <laughs> That's true. It did seem there are certain um, stories I hear where it does seem like they are overwhelmed by. Uh, the attention, but it's too little too late, it seems like it, they're already too um, a part where they're being, you know, they're they're hurting the PR for the, the royal family with interviews and, and leaks. Um, do you think that I, I asked this similar question about the divorce. It, d it did seem like Diana's death really shook the monarchy uh, demanding that the, the, the flag be lowered, demanding that the queen come home. Had the royal family ever seen such hostility towards them before the death of Princess Diana? Yes. Oh. Not, not, yeah, you, oh, yeah. If you, wow. If you're talking about the entire history of, of the British monarchy, then absolutely yes. Um, within recent memory, no. That's, that's fair to say. Um, you know, don't forget there was great hostility to Queen Victoria during uh, the second, well, during the the middle third of her reign, because after the death of Prince Consul Prince Albert, she essentially disappeared. Oh yes, uh, um, you know there was great discontent at that point with the idea that this woman should sit at the apex of society and yet never be seen within it, and sit at the apex of government and a constitutional setup and yet play no part in it. But I think in the in the twentieth century, no, I I think you're you're right. It was the most it was the most dangerous moment since the abdication, and even then the abdication was also. It was so sewn up, there was so little real possibility that Edward VIII would be allowed to remain king and have Mrs. Simpson alongside him that I, I don't think you can compare the two in, in, in terms of magnitude. A huge amount of this comes down to the fact that there had been a, a Labour government elected in the May of that year after 18 years of Conservative rule, and they were determined to do things differently. They were determined to modernise, they wanted to drag the monarchy along with them as part of the modernization program. Um, and Tony Blair was was and remains uh, addicted to publicity. So <laughs> he was going to do everything he could to interpolate himself into the situation, advised by Alistair Campbell. Um, and there was no possibility, therefore, that the royals and the court were going to be allowed to run things themselves as they had you know, pretty much untrammeled ever, ever before, in, in by and large. Um, once you have that combination of a, of a of a government which is soundbite happy, publicity hungry, and pretty much lacking in any respect for established institutions or established procedures for the constitutional setup, combined with the death of someone who is, I think her her star was on the on the wane before she died. This is the interesting thing that, uh, that in the months leading up to her death, uh, the newspaper coverage of the Princess of Wales was. Uh, was highly detrimental, and people were very unhappy with the way she was cavorting about, you know, on yachts in the south of France with uh, Mohammed Fayyad's son and things like that. She she was not as popular as she had been. Mm -hmm. You know, the irony is that by dying when she did, or being killed in the car crash when, when she was, uh, her reputation was cemented forever. Her star, you know, was fixed in the firmament. Had she lived, I think that she would probably have faded out um, over the coming over the, over the uh, subsequent years. But yes, you're right that it was a it was a great calamity in a way for the monarchy because it forced them forced the queen to act in a way which was alien to her. Right. It, which is the only time that she tends to make what you it might consider a mistake. 
is when the queen is forced out of her usual way of thinking and being, um, which is, you know, calm, considered, reserved, not given to displays of emotion, not given to hasty decision. Um, she, she's very much her father's daughter in that she's pragmatic. And having to react on the fly to this great media for all, having to battle between the attention of the world's media, the pressures of a, a new government, and I think probably a public demand that something be done. The public wanted something to be done that w but wasn't sure what that thing should be. I think that was the great problem. And it, it took arguably until the Diamond Jubilee for the monarchy really to recover from that. By the time of the Golden Jubilee in 2018, I think things had, had become better. When uh, the Prince of Wales and Mrs. Parker Bowles were married in 2005, then I think things were certainly on the uh, on the rise again. But I don't think we really saw the monarchy reach the level of respect and, and love that it had enjoyed before the death of the Princess of Wales until 2012. Wow, that's fascinating. That's a long time. We're seeing a lot of stories right now, and it was interesting to me because Dan Wooten says that TikTok has stirred up all of these conspiracy theories again around the death of Princess Diana. Why was Diana's death not an open and shut case? Were mistakes made? Because to me, I look at everything and I go, wasn't wearing a seatbelt, shouldn't have been in a car with the drunk driver, speed was in insane. I don't, I can't get behind any of the conspiracy theories. Um, I think in part it's cultural. People don't like to believe that horrid things can happen by accident. Um, they don't like to believe that people they adore, people to whom they look up, uh, you know, people they consider to be heroes can just die. You know, I think you, you, you pick any celebrity, uh, pick any untimely death of any celebrity, certainly... You know, over the past, I don't know, centuries. Anyone well-known dies before their time. There is always the idea of conspiracy. It's recently come around. Um, I think I, re I read in the newspaper last week that there is uh, a question over whether Donatello might have been murdered um, you know, just 500 years ago. The, wow. the idea that, uh, that uh, Michelangelo might have had him bumped off out of envy. Um, you know, the, think of all the conspiracies around the death of Marilyn Monroe. Yes. All, you know, th these things aren't allowed to just rest unless there is a definite cause. You think something like 9-11, where there is a, a catastrophic event, but with a very definite cause and an obvious culprit. When you have a beloved world figure dying in something so inconsequential and tr and so, un how best to put it, um so unworthy as a car accident in a Paris tunnel because the driver's drunk. I think that there's a sort of emotional shock that people undergo that, that causes them to think that can't just be it. There must be something behind it. It must right. be MI6 operating on the orders of the Duke of Edinburgh because they didn't want her to marry Dodie Fyde because it would have been embarrassing the mother of the future monarch to be the daughter-in-law of, of a shopkeeper. You know, there are all these sort of mental permutations and, and acrobatics that people go through in order to try to find some justification, in order to try and find some rationale behind it, when the, the simple truth is that accidents happen and they're often devastating. Um, I'm, sure that the, I'm sure that the rise of the internet has fueled these things, just as the rise of the internet has fueled conspiracy of all kinds. Right, yes. Um, I, do, I don't think that, that, that... I don't think that TikTok, for instance, 
is responsible for conspiracies about the death of Diana. I think, you know, there have been conspiracies ever since the day in August 1997 when the news was announced. Um, and I think there will be conspiracies as long as there are people to conspire, as it were. Um, I, I mean, you could say that it's given them a wider uh, public, a wider audience, but I don't think that changes the fact that they are still bonkers. There's still <laughs> nothing to it. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a good answer. Um, what do you think people will do when Prince Charles ascends to the throne? Do you think that they will accept Charles and Camilla, or do you think that there will be issues there? It's going to be a moment of such enormous transition, not just for this country, but for the world. And I think it will take a little while for the dust to settle and for people to become used to the fact that the Queen is no more. I think that he will, A, I think he's going to do a very good job. Yeah. And B, I think he and the Duchess of Cornwall, who will finally take her rightful title, uh, will be welcomed and will they'll have a great deal of goodwill behind them. Because the institution of monarchy is greater than the holder of the office. And no matter what people's problems with the... Unless they're diehard Republicans. And what, and whatever people's problems with the holder of the office, the majority of people in this country, I think, want the institution to continue. And therefore, they are automatically set up to, to wish well of the incumbent of the office. Just as, I think, uh, just uh, to, to you know, look across the Atlantic, even if people dislike the current president, I think most people who aren't absolutely loony want their want the presidency to succeed. Correct. Um, no, it's it's that idea that it it is the embodiment of the nation, and therefore to wish it ill and for wish to wish it to fail is to wish failure upon your own nation, mm -hmm. which is itself pretty much treachery. Right. Um, and I think that it's first of all it's long overdue. That, uh, that the Duchess of Cornwall is given the precedence and title that she deserves. It should have happened, frankly, when she was married to the Prince of Wales. She should have become Princess of Wales. And I think the fact that she didn't has dragged this whole thing on much, much, much longer than it ever needed to be dragged on. Interesting. Very good, very good that now in, in this year of, uh, of her jubilee, the Queen has said that she very much hopes that the Duchess of Cornwall will be Queen Consort. I think that's an extremely encouraging sign. And I think that now that the Queen has, as it were, given her blessing to it, most people will fall into line. They'll, they'll still be the, what I call the Daily Express fringe, the, the sort of lunatic fringe who can't accept that Princess Diana's de uh, Diana Princess Wales' death was accidental, can't accept Miller Parker Bowles as Duchess of Cornwall and future Queen, and will always think that she's some kind of interloper. But that that's a minority of a minority. They don't That's really count. That's so interesting. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question. I'm going to let you take a sip of water and then I'll let you go. I'm so grateful for your time. My pleasure. Um, I I need. I, uh, there is a technical reason why Prince William could not skip Prince Charles, correct? I mean, when people try to talk about this and debate this, it's just impossible and there's no reason to debate it, correct? Isn't there? Well, it's, it's, it's possible. You would have an act of parliament. Um, Oh, it would be exceptionally unusual, frankly, and I can't. I just can't encompass a situation where it would happen. Okay. Um, you know, the Prince of Wales is off sound. If he, if if he were mentally incapacitated, that would be a possibility. Because, but even then, I think you would have a Regency Act, 
as he did uh, under George III when he was suffering from his final bout of manic depression, which left him incapacitated for 11 years before his death. You had the regency of, uh, of the Prince of Wales later, George IV. Um, and there are so few circumstances in which I can imagine it that it's it's just not worth I think, anybody thinking about it. Right. I don't think there's any real hunger for it. Again, that you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe a quarter of people think that because Prince, uh, the Prince of Wales is old, that it should skip to a younger person. Well, that's just not how the institution of an hereditary monarchy works. But what you if get, it's that, that you get people the job after the person? What if it's that they don't like Prince Charles? Well, if... then that's something they're going to have to deal with because that <laughs> people disliking the future monarch doesn't change the fact that the succession is set is absolute right. is in you know in impermeable. Except of course, if you know we don't have a monarchy anymore. Um, the rules of succession are very, very clear. They have to be to avoid civil war and chaos and strife. Um, if people don't like Prince Charles, well, Yabu sucks to them. He's the next king. There's nothing you can do about it. And in time, the Duke of Cambridge will be king. And in time, you know, the, the, and so on and so on. That's how the whole hereditary system works. Um, how can people keep up with you? How, if you you are, they want to watch your TV appearances, um, Twitter, Instagram. Where, where? Well, can that would be you? very kind of them indeed. They can find me on Twitter at David underscore Old Bolt, uh, and they can look out for me on GB News, which is available to stream on YouTube and online. And I hope they can listen to more of our podcasts in the future. Wait, oh, I meant to ask you this right off the bat. Um, do you have a reaction to Meghan Markle's podcast? <laughs> I haven't listened to it. I won't be listening to it. And I think that anybody who does is merely encouraging a rather delusional woman in her delusions. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the answer I was looking for. Amazing. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I'll talk to you again soon. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Bye. Bye.